John paints for us pictures of Jesus and calls us to find our life in Him. And this morning we're in John chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the, over of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now as we uh, come to the actions and the words of your Son, our King, our Savior, who sometimes acts and speaks in ways that seem bizarre to us, that can seem confusing and strange. Would you help us to understand? And to understand not for the sake of clear knowledge, but of transformed lives. Would you bring us 
humble before your word of life and change us with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was in my car at an intersection, and I noticed a car crossing the intersection from the other direction. And in that car, I noticed a man whose hand on the steering wheel was the only still part of his body. Without any inhibition at all, he was dancing to whatever music was playing on his radio. And it made me chuckle. It made me smile. And then I noticed the contrast with myself. As I sat in my car, very still, listening to NPR, talk about the dark cloud of the global economy. (laughs) And then that made me think of John chapter 2. And how the God who I worship, when He became flesh, His first miraculous act was to extend and intensify a party by providing high-quality alcohol. And then I noticed a contrast with myself in my life. And how often my life is so joyless. How often I focus on the scarcity of what I don't have or what I might lose rather than the fullness of what I've been given. Maybe you can relate. Alexander Schmemann, apart from having a great name, was, was a Christian theologian in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and he wrote this. He said, without the proclamation of joy, Christianity is incomprehensible. Without the proclamation of joy, Christianity is incomprehensible. So this morning, I want to take a few moments and try to make our faith a little more comprehensible as we hear the proclamation of joy in the actions of Jesus here in John chapter 2. Christian joy in two parts, meaning and method. What is it and how do we have it? First of all, the meaning of joy. We do need to recognize that Jesus' intention, his goal for this miracle, wasn't merely intoxication. Notice from verse 6, which containers he chooses for this water that becomes wine. They are the jars set aside for purification rituals. Cleanliness rituals were an important thing to God's people. The Old Testament is full of instructions about how to remain pure, what to do if you become impure. And of course, in the end, these rituals weren't about personal hygiene. They were about relational acceptance with God. How is one acceptable to God, especially as one comes to worship Him at the temple? So you see why John put these two stories together here in chapter 2? Jesus is at a party celebrating, and then all of a sudden he's in Jerusalem at the temple, and he's angry, and he's throwing furniture around. 
Why? Because there is an economic barrier between God and those who are coming to worship Him. Jesus is purifying the temple. He is taking away the barrier. So see, this second story in John chapter 2 is as much about joy and celebration as the first story. Because joy is related to purity. Now we don't usually put those two things together. Cleaning and partying are in two separate realms. We put those in different compartments, right? Why does John 2 hold them together? Well, notice that Jesus doesn't turn water into wine at just any random party. He turns water into wine at a wedding feast. And John calls what he does a sign. In fact, it's the first of seven major signs that organize the Gospel of John. And these signs reveal, they manifest, the glory of Jesus. In other words, they're not magic tricks. They are powerful demonstrations of who Jesus is and what he is accomplishing. So this first and foundational sign, it says, it reveals that Jesus is accomplishing the celebration of a wedding feast. And recall that God often describes His ideal relationship with His people as a marriage. And then throughout the story of Scripture, sin is what creates distance. It's what breaks the relationship with God between Himself and His people. Between Him and us. Sin makes us impure. It makes us unfit to be close to God. To be near His presence. But what Jesus is doing at the wedding and at the temple is He's saying, I've come to deal with what blocks you from God. I have come to purify you for His presence. Joy is about purity because purity is about God's presence, which is the only true and lasting source of joy. It's no surprise then that as John writes the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. He paints a vision of the future when Jesus will return and make all things new and He will welcome those who belong to Him, those who've had their robes washed white. He welcomes them to what? A wedding feast. See, our deepest possible pleasure is in the welcoming embrace of God. That's the meaning of joy. It is to be welcomed into the presence of God. And Jesus came to make that possible. He came to purify us for that delight. Robert Gober is an artist. He's a modern artist. And, and some of his most well-known works involve 
uh, plaster replicas of bathroom sinks without faucets and without drains. As is inevitable when an artist does that, people ask, why? (laughs) What what is this about? Why bathroom sinks without drains or faucets? And he said, when you stand in front of a sink, you're trying to make yourself clean. You're expecting to clean yourself. He said, I'm obsessed with making objects that embody that broken promise. See, he gets that purity wasn't just the concern of some ancient, pre-modern, unenlightened, unenlightened people. It's a concern for us. It is something that we feel. We use words for it like shame. That sense that I'm not only done wrong, but I am wrong. I am somehow unfit, unacceptable, dirty, at a distance. And that sense of uncleanness at its heart is a result of what's happened to our relationship with God. It is the effect of sin on this world and in our lives. But Jesus came to say, that promise isn't broken. That is not a broken promise, that expectation, that desire to be made pure, to be made acceptable. That is not a broken promise. The joy of restoration to God is possible. How? How is that possible? How is that profound Gladness. How do we access that? Well, let's consider secondly, not only the meaning of joy, but the method of joy. How do we get, how do we know this profound happiness? Well, isn't the interaction between Jesus and his mom a, little, a strange one at this party? She comes to him and asks him for help, for help that he will eventually give, and he gets all grumpy with her, right? He says, woman, which is bad enough, and then he says, what? This, is, this has nothing to do with me. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus, whenever he talks about his hour in the Gospel of John, is always referring to his death. He's always talking about the cross, when he speaks about his hour. So he's saying, listen, there's more happening here than you realize. As we've already seen, there is another wedding that Jesus is working towards. God is the bridegroom who saves the best wine for last. Jesus is the one who will provide the ultimate wine for the ultimate feast. But it comes at the cost of his own blood. You see, as Jesus sat at this celebration, he could taste his coming sorrow. 
That is affirmed and extended in the second story of John chapter 2. John explains what Jesus is doing by referring to Psalm 69. He says Jesus is embodying these words about a passion for the house of God, a zeal for God to dwell with His people. But if you go back to that psalm, you'll find a very sad song. The king, David, because of his passion for the house of God, was under attack. He was under threat. He was suffering. He was almost overwhelmed. And he says, my sorrow is like drinking sour wine. You see, in the Bible, wine can represent happiness and gladness and celebration. But it can also be a symbol for sorrow and grief and suffering and even judgment. So, when John tells us the story of Jesus hanging on the cross, as he's dying, he says, I'm thirsty. And what do they give him? They give him sour wine. That's the method of joy. Jesus drinks the cup of sorrow so that he can hand us the cup of celebration. He drinks the wine of judgment and wrath. The judgment and wrath that our sin deserves so that he can pour for us the wine of forgiveness. God's own spirit. You see, the celebration of the first sign, this wedding feast, is accomplished by the final sign. Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus became the temple so it could be torn down and rebuilt so that He could welcome God's people into His presence and into the fullness of joy that is found there. Jesus drank your grief so that you could drink His joy. And our role in this method is the same as the disciples in verses 11 and 22. They believed. They believed even when they didn't understand until after His resurrection, they believed. That's your role in the method of joy. And do you know what that means? That means that you won't always feel it. Joy is announced in Jesus, but you will not always feel it. The call to delight isn't the call to pretend. The the promise of joy is not the promise of the immediate removal and absence of all sorrow. No, Christians will be sad. They will struggle with depression. Until that final feast, we will know sorrow and grief, pain and loss. But you know what else that means? 
It means that even in our sorrow, we must learn to drink the wine of the gospel. We must learn a focused and even disciplined attention on Jesus. On what He has done. On what He has promised for our eternal delight. Christian Wyman, a longtime editor of Poetry Magazine, he wrote in one of his editor's notes, and he talked about how difficult it is to read poetry. It takes work. It takes a process of learning. And he compares that to learning joy. He says, being prepared for He says there is a discipline in being prepared for joy, just as there is a discipline in being prepared for poetry. That's the discipline of the Christian life. The practice of prayer, most especially, worship, community Bible reading, the disciplines of the Christian life are preparation for joy. We are habitually bringing ourselves to the announcement of joy in Jesus. We are bringing ourselves to that message of what He has done for us. And even as we struggle, even as we grieve, even as we are sad, even as we face loss, we habitually bring ourselves to the proclamation of joy. The message that Jesus poured out His own blood to wash us and to welcome us into the presence of God. We bring ourselves to Jesus revealing God's love for us. 17th century poet and pastor George Herbert, he describes that love this way. He says, love is that liquor, sweet and most divine, which my God tastes as blood, but I as wine. Let's taste joy this week as we drink deeply from God's love revealed to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, yes, would you bring us to the fountain? Would you bring us to the wine of the gospel? The wine of what Jesus has done for us. Would you help us to realize that all other joys will fade? But there is an eternal gladness in your presence, which we have in part now and will know in full when Jesus returns. Help us to taste that. Help us to bring ourselves daily to the announcement of joy in Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen.